Good morning. My name is Pina, recovered alcoholic. I'm grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, it's interesting watching folks drift in here before coffee and then watching you guys after about six glasses of coffee. It gets really loud and we keep talking. It's like everyone's on crack for an hour. It's crazy. Yeah. I was. I met a couple of gentlemen in this room, not too the other side of here. I don't know where I was. I was on the other side, and I struck. I kind of walked in there, and they were having coffee, and I had a cup with them, and I had my second cup, and they couldn't shut me up, and they said, "How's that coffee? Good." You know. Um, we're gonna see where God moves us. Um, I do uh, very little preparation for these things. Um, my preparation is not on the plane here to speak to you or in my room before I get here. Uh, my preparation is uh, what I'm doing in the trenches all week long, all month long. And whenever I give these talks or a workshop, um, I hope it's a reflection of what I've gotten over the last week or so, last month. And I always like to talk about current experience. So I have no preparation. I like to be a, a, a hollow vessel. Um, we were talking earlier. I, I do fast uh, before I speak. I don't eat. Uh, I don't do anything. I'll have maybe a cup of coffee prior to, um, other than the morning cup. Um, I don't put anything in. I observe fasting and, and days of silence at home uh, along with the spiritual tools that I work with. And so it gets me aligned with this power, and hopefully this thing speaks through me and reaches you. Um, I have notes with me. I might refer to them sometimes. I don't. Uh, i rather just interpret what's giving, uh, given to me and then pass on to you. It's clean that way. There's no uh, very little ego involved, hopefully. There's less of me around. In fact, when I do these things, I pray I don't show up for them, let the body get here, but want to leave Pete Marinelli, you know, out, outside, because that guy wants approval, wants to impress, is insecure, uh, wants to say the right things, wants to sound polished. You don't need that, and I don't need that. Um, so early this morning, I did what I normally do on awakening, and I literally mean on awakening. This came to me many years ago. Uh, rather than cursing the day, eyes open, and I thank my Heavenly Father for bringing me uh, to another day. And I have some dialogue with God. Uh, after a few minutes uh, at home, if I was home, uh, I kind of shift around when I'm in hotel rooms or, or, or cabins. Um, but at home, I have an altar. And it's a, I have a, a meditation mat, a meditation cushion, and I have an altar in front of me, and I have uh, lots of religious articles. I'm a Catholic, so things that reflect that, pictures of the carpenter. I have some Eastern uh, influence there as well. Uh, I don't see any conflict with that. They're just on separate spots. I have my sage. I have my candles. I have uh, my all these little trinkets that folks in AA have given me over the years. And I have pictures. Are pictures of people who are near and dear to me. And that's in front of me and it's waiting. And so on awakening, I hit the mat and then I go into prayer. And I work with prayers like the third and seventh step prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the serenity prayer. And there's a surrender that's involved in that first and foremost surrendering my day to this power to, to carry out the vision of His will for me. Because if I don't do that, 
that means in about 10 minutes an idiot's going to take over my life. That's me. Which means by tonight I'll be making amends. You'll be lining up and I'll be making amends to everyone. So uh, I start my day that way. Then I go into sacred silence. And my meditation time, um, I like to sit in minimum of 10 minutes, but I don't time it. There was a, a, a phase of recovery where I would time it. And there was a point I remember going on uh, where I'm from. It was a, 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 a competition as to who got up earliest and who meditated longest. That meant you were Moses. And uh, what I realized, it was just in another attachment to a mechanic, a met, uh, attachment to a methodology, an attachment to something other than worshiping the only thing. So uh, my meditation now is minimum 10 minutes and sometimes as long as 45. I'm up early. Uh, I, I like to start my day early. Um, I've always been that way uh, since I'm sober, and to me it's a, just a spiritual movement. Um, I don't sleep past 7 a.m. That's, that's really a late day. I'm up at 5, sometimes earlier. And uh, what I have found out, uh, and we have to be awake to touch these things, because if we're sound asleep thinking we're awake, God will send in every messenger, every thing he can to get our attention and we'll keep walking and looking uh, but when we're awake and in the light we kind of read these things register with us and um, I always tell folks what was told to me there's times I'm up at 4 a.m. and I'm up you know you wake up and you just up no worries no shut you just ready to roll and I would say why am I up so early well God woke me up maybe there's something I need to do like listen Maybe I need to pray a little earlier. Maybe I need to write. I have lots of things that come to me that I write. Uh, maybe there's a book I need to, to read. So when I'm up that early, uh, an hour early than I normally am, I'm saying, okay, God woke me up. Thank God. Uh, but maybe I'm supposed to be doing something during this very sacred time. And the, the mornings for me have become incredibly sacred. I don't like my mornings uh, uh, upside down. I'm not one of those folks who can wake up, quick prayer, and out the door and go to work. I need, like, you know, time. Uh, it's a rhythm for me. So this morning, uh, that's what I did. I did my prayer meditation. I did some reading from my scripture, and uh, it's just a, a routine. And uh, I do some other readings, and, and off I go. Had my first cup of coffee, and we're here this morning. And uh, so I hope this is a reflection of, of where God has brought me. The other thing is uh, these workshops. I, I touched on it last night, I, I believe. Uh, this isn't about us against them. This is not my workshops are not about big bookers against non-big bookers. This is not about we're right and those other contemporaries are wrong. It's attraction, not promotion. And the last thing I need to do is cause us against them. Because those other folks who might not be in the book and some might be here this morning, if I start, if we start us against them, we're right and they're wrong, they will never come here and ask for help. And Don P. used to always tell us, attraction, not promotion. They found a different way. And when they struggle, they know where to come. Let me always have my hand out for the sick and suffering and never shoot the wounded. This is a method that works for me. It may not work for others. And God has given me some passion and a willingness still to go to any lengths to, to experience him and stay recovered and to enhance and grow in understanding and effectiveness. So I'm grateful for that. June 23rd, 1980, I was separated from alcohol for the last time. And that's not to be pretentious or boastful or, or, or conceited when I say the last time. I'm convinced if I'm right with God, I've had my last drink or drug. 
the methods I work with, that we get to work with in order to stay sober and recovered, are like kissing a newborn on the cheek compared to the work to keep the drunk going and the manipulation and the dishonesty and the deceitfulness and looking over the shoulder and covering our tracks and remembering the lies. That's work. Coming in here on a Saturday morning, getting to talk about God, getting to talk about the information I've given us, transform my life, and then in the morning making some prayer, in the evening making some prayer and working with others. This is easy. Drastic and revolutionary. It'll challenge everything about us. But compared to the work I did, being homeless and sleeping in the back of a hallway without bathing or eating for days at a time, that's a lot more difficult than coming here and talking to you about my experience, huh? Or going to our local home group and sitting down with a couple of buds, uh, kicking it around, having some coffee, participate in a meeting, look for a newcomer and go home. Because we have a home now. That's usually the heat is on, the electricity's working, Right? Bills might be a little late, but we can pay them. Some of us even self-supporting through our own contributions. <laughs> some of us. This is AA. Some of us. Uh, yeah. And we're not covering our tracks. And we get to live in the sunlight of the Spirit. Um, June of 88, I had no plans of doing any of this. Uh, June of 88, there was a voice in my head telling me, Who are you kidding? I wanted, I wanted sobriety more than anything. I couldn't, I couldn't take dying anymore. My bottom for me was horrific. It was the worst bottom in the world because it was mine. But I couldn't take it anymore, and I knew it. Uh, um, I wanted sobriety. I would see the H&I folks come into the treatment centers and bring us meetings. I hated them up until my seventh treatment center. I remember uh, there was a show called Miami Vice way back when, and I'm sitting in treatment. And Sonny Crockett was my higher power. I mean, this is where I was. <laughs> so the H&I folks would come in on Friday night at 8 o'clock and do their thing. And I'm sitting in treatment. Now, Friday night at 9 o'clock, Miami Vice went on. So what I would write on the chalkboard, Miami Vice, 9 p.m., speakers, please leave promptly. Now, you know how we are, AAs. The meeting ends at 9. We want to hang out and talk. We want to chat. We want to know each other. It would infuriate me that the goody two-shoes in treatment and these H&I pain in my butts would hang around, and I'm, can you get out of the way? I'm trying to watch Sonny Crockett. Move. Take it outside. This was where I was in recovery until 1988 came. And when these H&I folks came in, I was the guy grabbing them after the meeting saying, hey, what, where do I, what do I do? I can't stay sober. And after I get done asking some legitimate questions, heartfelt questions, and, and telling them I'm scared to death, I know I'm going to drink and die, and they would give me their best shot, I'd walk away feeling good for a minute that I'm trying here, and the voice in my head, which is the cruelest voice in the world, would say, Who are you kidding? You're a fraud. You're Peter Marinelli from Brooklyn, New York. You're a mistake. Go to your bunk and let's get out of here. Loud. But somehow it was able to overcome those obstacles because of grace. And I'm still here, thank the good Lord. Um, when I went out to Minnesota, it was the first time I heard disinformation from the big book. 
And what made it convincing to me, and it's something I've realized when we're delivering this message, it's about, uh, uh, is this message manifesting out there? Uh, am I practicing these principles in all my affairs? Or am I an AA guru and a house devil? As soon as I leave the podium, you don't even want to have coffee with me. What these men and women did, especially at this Three Legacies meeting, uh, they would take me to a diner. I had no money. They would pick me up from the halfway house. They would take me to the meeting, and they'd take me out uh, to the diner, and uh, they would buy me coffee. They'd buy me a little sandwich. Never asked me for money. Never made me feel uh, the way I was feeling. And they would talk about recovery. And I never forget there was one uh, uh, Minnesota Viking uh, were playing a, a, a playoff game. And there was like a, almost a Super Bowl party this gentleman was having. I think the meeting was called the Tradition Five or Fifth Tradition Meeting. And a bunch of those folks in the Three Legacies were there. It was a Sunday afternoon. And we were out of our AA uniform. We were in a social setting. And watching the game, and the Vikings are big time out there for football and, and all these diehard football fans. And I was really insecure, and one guy said, this is Joe, this is Frank, this is Bill, and we're introducing me to everyone, and they're having some, some uh, snacks. And I'm listening. And they're talking about struggles at work, uh, accomplishments at work. They're talking about raising their children and the challenges with children. They're talking about some of their difficulties in relationships and their success. They were talking about life. But they were doing it with grace and dignity. There was no, the heck with them and I'll get them and we got to. It was just doing it like we do it. And I, I remember that something allowed me to pay close attention to this because they were demonstrating these principles in their homes. And our book talks about a much more important dem demonstration these principles lies before us in our homes, occupations, and affairs, not the AA meeting. Anyone could be spiritual for an hour. You, know, you walk into AA and we're like, we're Moses for an hour. Everything's good. No, you first. No, you go first. No, you go first. <laughs> then you get on the expressway and someone accidentally cuts you off and you're locking and loading and chasing them down, you know, um, on your way to the next meeting to be Moses for an hour, right? So I, I watch these folks uh, um, live this was different for me. I mean, and, and my story's not worse than anyone, but where I come from in Brooklyn, it was throw punches, ask questions later, be the toughest guy, you know, testosterone at a, this ridiculous level, be a man, John Wayne, you don't fear anyone, you never show a sensitivity, never show vulnerability. It's that barroom gangster thing I grew up with. And I'm watching these men talk about delicate issues. How much they love their wife, how much they love their children. I mean, this is foreign. And it's going to sound silly, but one of the things that attracted me to these men in AA, they were spiritual. They were strong, they were tough, but they were spiritual. And when they got to the podium, I love men who got dressed. They had a watch. I love watches till now. I have a whole bunch of them. They had a watch on, and the thing that was the turn, the, the tipping point for me was married men got up to the podium with a wedding band. Where I come from, if you're married and you have a wedding band, you're whipped. You're weak. You don't, you don't do that. But I saw this, and I, I, that's where I was at. I, this was a power of example to me. And they talked about their love. I mean, it's just incredible. But they all talked about God.
And I wanted what they had to offer. What God was doing was sending messengers. Send Joe today, Frank tomorrow, Mary the next day. He was sending these messengers to keep feeding me and reeling me in. And so I still have my heroes in AA. But as we move along, and the old timers will know this, how we have the newbies looking to us now. So we have a huge responsibility. June of 88, I wasn't planning on any of this. I just didn't want to die. Now, I had been through seven treatment centers, and I had gone to AA drunk. I would leave a meeting meeting, uh, 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 and get drunk. I had basically no sobriety over a whole bunch of years. And uh, land in AA, and I, I have an idea what I suffer from, and that is I can't stop drinking. But why? I made lots of attempts to quit drinking, couldn't stop. When I wasn't drinking, all I thought about was drinking. If I wasn't drinking, I was taking powder. I was putting powder in my body, eating enormous amounts of pills. There was something going in me because I couldn't deal with nothing. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and they sit me down, and they start to describe to me what I suffer from. And we learn about the first step in here. What about those of us who have been around here a while, who think we've gotten away from step one. I, you know, I'm an alcoholic, and I know all about step one. It's about obsession, compulsion, and spiritual malady, and that's a thing of the past. How do I get step one, unmanageability, to meet us where we currently are if I'm double-digit sobriety? How do I get the book to meet me where I am every time I go through it? Is my life based in abstinence or in spirit? Am I currently experiencing resistance or acceptance? Am I experiencing ease and comfort or disease and discomfort? Do I have a life of quiet desperation or one of inspiration? Where am I currently? Am I on page 52? Not, not where I have a day where I'm a little bit fearful. We get that. A little bit in the dumpster. I don't know why. But we're living. We're having trouble in personal relationships, which means I don't get into a spat with the wife over something and then we patch it up and we kind of keep moving. Or me and a coworker don't see eye to eye. I'm having trouble in personal relationships, which means when I'm alone on the couch and no one's around, I'm fighting. I'm thinking about things from the past and how could they do this to me and when I get them in the future and when I get there I know what they're going to do to me and I'm, and I'm just struggling I don't like the people at work I'm having a huge problem with God my ego will never tell me that I'm, str- I'm fighting I can't control my emotional nature what's that look like? I wake up on Monday morning at 6 o'clock and I feel really good by 7 o'clock I want, to, I want to overdose. I want to get out. I break a shoelace at 7 o'clock on my shoes, and I go, oh, it's going to be one of these days, right? And then we're miserable for the entire rest of the day. And one thing about us, if I'm miserable, you're going to be miserable too. <laughs> Everybody's got it. Everyone needs to know I'm miserable. And don't try to give me a pep talk. Be miserable with me. <laughs> Full of fear. Everything is fear. All manifest, all coming from this thinking mind, by the way, which is the predator. That's where all this stuff gets churned out. Not in spirit. All my difficulties, or our difficulties, all our difficulties are coming from one place. The greatest predator on the planet is the mind. 
It is the most dangerous instrument ever. I think I have thoughts that thoughts have me. And it isn't until we get to the 11th step where we're God-inspired that we get to use the mind and we're no longer a, uh, the mind is no longer a master, but it serves us because we have a God-like mind, if you will. Any spiritual person will tell you the greatest enemy they face or we face is the thinking mind. We don't need it. We need to dump it until we experience this purging or the death of self, the purging of the old self to experience this God mind which the 11th step talks about. At that point, we're on a different plane, a different footing. We're listening to inspiration and we can do great things. Can't make a living. Another bedevilment on page 52. Right? What's this look like? How am I doing? How's my, how's my life currently look? So those of us who've been around a while, we look at the second half of the first step where it says unmanageability. We say, well, I'm not drinking. Everything's good. And we get attached to my external world, all the ducks are in a row. I'm working. I'm in a relationship. I have some money. Got a nice house. Got a car. Everything's good on the outside. Therefore, I must be doing okay. That's not what they're talking about. It's my internal condition that they're talking about. And if I am dependent upon my car is me, my relationship is me, my marriage is me, uh, my job, all these things make me who I am. I have a little reputation in AA that makes me who I am. I'm closer to a drink than I think because I'm dependent upon something outside of God to get me right. And we live in a world uh, of impermanence where things are here and then they go. We're all going to pass. So even the most successful marriage where people are married, say, 50 years, one's going to get called home. That relationship has now changed. So nothing is permanent, yet I put my, my, all my stock into something that's going to leave anyway. That new car, when I drive up, my neighbors go, wow, Peter must be somebody. He's got a brand new car. Look at that. He's doing good. I know they're thinking that, so I get out of the car and I got my new car. I'm good. And the car looks really good till I get the first car payment, and I go, why did I do this? <laughs> and then six months later, you know, you got cigarettes in the ashtray, and you know, it's a, it's a, who cares? But at that moment, I was a big shot. And the only thing I have found that's consistent, pristine, impeccable, and always there, and pursuing me and going to any lengths to get me, is God. That is untouched, and it's always present. Even in sordid spots is this power called God. It's not only in, you know, the, these fancy temples or churches or, or these wonderful AA conferences. It's with this God is under a bridge with a drunk right now. And that guy might be my sponsor in 30 days. So we need to look at the second half for the first step. So let's talk a little bit about step one. First things first, there's 43 pages in my big book that talk about step one. 43 pages without including doctor's opinion. 43 pages that are dedicated to body and mind and a little bit of spirit about step one. But body and mind. Chapter three is all about this predator called the mind. 43 pages because they knew when I came in here, it's going to take a lot more than a little pamphlet to get my attention. Because I'm always looking for a loophole. 43 pages. So what do we suffer from? What do they talk about? Bill sets this up beautifully when he tells, he gives testimony. The first nine pages of Bill's story says testimony. It's his qualification. So if I'm in some, you know, faraway place and I pick up this book, I can read Bill's story. The first nine pages say, okay, I drink like Bill. I understand that. 
The second half of Bill's story is his recovery, the methods that were given to him in order to get recovered, including the white light experience he had in Towns Hospital. So, okay, he got some methodology. And then they begin to break down 17 to 23 to body, 23 to 43 to mind, and then we get introduced to step two. So what do I suffer from? I can tell you when I drink, the cravings always intensify, never satisfied. I have a physical allergy, an allergic reaction to booze. I'm in South Florida. People are drinking a lot. You see them going for lunch, they'll have a cold beer outside at some fancy place. They have a beer, maybe two, and go back to work, they show up for life. I pick up a drink of beer, I have another beer, and then I have a third beer, and then I don't show up for work. I go MIA. Once I have the first, I have the second. Now, what's really frightening about this, I know my bottom. I pick up a drink, I wind up, you know, in a homeless shelter tonight. That's how I, that's how I do it. But the trickster is, some of us will leave an AA meeting or leave treatment. And we learn all this information. And we go down to the bar, waiting for the bus, and we go in, we see some of the old guys, and we have one drink. And here comes the bus, we get on the bus and get home. And we start to think, I had one drink, got away with it. Second day, do the same thing, go into the bar, have a, one drink with the guys, make a toast, here's the bus, get on the bus, go home. And I get home, I start to wonder, maybe these folks in AA misdiagnosed me. Maybe I was too drastic about my condition. And I go into the bar on Wednesday, do the same thing. I have a drink, get on the bus and go home. Now I'm saying drink is not a problem. Three days and I had one drink and went home. Thursday, I go into the bar, have one drink, and then the mind says, hold on. Let's have one for the road. You did three days in a row, have one for the road. And then I'll have just one more. And then I'll have one more. And then I'm back to the same vicious cycle again. Whether we blow up on the first drink or it takes a few times to blow up, the fuse has been lit because my body craves alcohol. I have an abnormal reaction to booze or any other substance going in. I don't react like a civilian does. My body craves more. The cravings always intensified. And Dr. Silkworth talked about this. Bill's experience proved that. There's no such thing as one drink phenomenon called craving. So I started to understand this. So the question, it begged the question, then why start in the first place? I can't tell you how many folks I see in treatment, 15, 20 treatment centers, been to AA, in and out of AA for years. And I asked them, what do you suffer from? They said, I'm an alcoholic. He said, what does that mean? I said, well, when I start, I can't, once I start, I can't stop. I said, I asked the question, why start in the first place? And they're blank. I'll ask them, what makes you an alcoholic? Well, um, I'm uh, sensitive to life. Um, I spend money um, uh, irresponsibly. And they have all these reasons why they think they're alcoholic. If I don't know the problem, how in God's name am I going to work on a solution? So what drives me back to that which is killing me? What takes me back to that which is killing me? No one forces me to drink. No one will ever make me drink. The only thing that's going to convince me to drink is the mind, and that's the obsession. And that doesn't get remedied, in my experience, by just coming to an AA meeting. Because I show up with the same mind and I leave with the same mind. And while I'm in a meeting, my mind's interpreting the meeting from a very dark place. And I have an ego that wants to ease God out, that insists that I drink. And insists that God doesn't show up. And likes being angry and restless and irritable and discontented. And the only remedy is to get another drink. 
So I had this other piece called this obsession to alcohol. And what's really frightening is if I'm not drinking and I got the white knuckle sobriety, it doesn't mean my mind has shut down and is going to go on to another victim. This illness will go underground and resurface in other areas. They're called sex sprees. I talked about this last night in food sprees and sprees. I need something to deal with this present moment because this present moment is too overwhelming for me to deal with because I can't do life on life's terms. I need something. And then we emerge remorseful with a firm resolution. I'm not going to do that again. If he or she finds out, I'll get divorced. My boss will find me. And we come back with our tail between our legs and we're back to this moment again and I need to run. And this is repeated over and over and over. And at one point we say, you know what? I need a drink. That'll fix everything. And we're right back again. And the mind forgets that once I pick up, I can't stop. Huh? If you guys can go to uh, page 34 for a minute. It says, for those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. The second paragraph. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. That means forever. I'm unable to drink moderately. I take a statement, put it into question. Am I able to drink moderately? Absolutely not. And I need to stop forever. It says, we are assuming, of course, that I desire to stop. Yeah, I do. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. And this is where some of our meetings split right down the middle. If I'm a person who can't drink moderately, but drinks alcoholically, the cravings intensified, then I can't stop on a non-spiritual basis. I need something outside of me to stay stopped. If I'm a hard drinker, and hard drinkers can drink some of us under the table, Hard drinkers will have DWIs, even make treatment, even make an emergency room, but they don't suffer from the threefold illness. They say, I'm putting a plug in a jug and done with this. They may not need the spiritual basis of living and don't have to go to somebody any lengths many of us have to go to. They don't drink and go to meetings, and they get 40 and 50 years sober. Bless their hearts. But for me, if I had the power to not drink, why do I need to go to an AA meeting? I just put the plug in the jug and get on with my life. I'm unable to drink moderately, so therefore I need a spiritual basis of living. Here's what goes on with me when I'm not drinking. Page 52, which I talked about a second ago. They talk about the bedevilments here. Bedevilments are things that torment, frustrate, and harass us. So if I had a neighbor who was tormenting me, frustrating me, and harassing me, I'd probably move or call the cops. I wouldn't invite them over for dinner. But this thing, the bedevilments, we keep inviting in, expecting not to get ripped off because it's ours. This is untreated alcoholism. This is how we have an abnormal reaction to abstinence. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional nature. We were prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy, and we couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. This is a state of consciousness generated by my effort to live life on self-will. 
and the external world owns me. I'm running raw and I don't have any kind of power to move through. So everyone's out to get me and I need a drink. Two halves of the first step. It says, we admitted we're palace over alcohol, dash, that Elias had become unmanageable. There's two pieces to this. And here's, here's my experience with this. Palace over alcohol means I don't have power, choice, or control. If I don't have power, I don't have choice. If I don't have choice, I don't have control. And uh, they've done some brain studies now that really eliminate the theory that we really have choice. It feels like I'm making a choice. I'm going to go get drunk. The choice has been made for me. I can't pull out. Once that's on, I'm drinking. There's no power. There is no choice. There is no control. I've sat with therapists who said, you guys have a choice. We have to teach you positive thinking, positive affirmations. And I found out they're not even alcoholic. So that put that to bed. I says, it appears that the alcoholic is, or the, the addict is making a decision I'm going to go use today. It's done for us. It pulls us, and we can't get out. Even when we know this might not work out good, we're still driven to go do it one more time. It flies in the face of sanity. It just doesn't work. It's an insane way of operating. And everyone sees it around us. We get a glimpse of it now and then, but we're so driven, we're hooked, and we can't get away. No power choice control before I even pick up a drink in the mind. So here's what I offer. Why do we tell newcomers... Bring the body and the mind will follow. Why do I want a newcomer's mind anywhere in the, the, the province of Cavalry? Uh, Ca- Calgary. I'm really far from home, man. That's how but that's an interesting slip. Cavalry is a good thing, right? Okay. I'm trying to cover up right now. Why would I want a newcomer's mind showing up anywhere in Calgary? Anywhere. Bring the body and the mind to follow. This mind is a thing that's going to say we do have power, choice, control. I'm only going to have one. I'm only going to have a couple. I'm only going to go on marijuana maintenance. I won't do the hard stuff. I'm just going to control and moderate and regulate and all these other things. Besides, she doesn't love me and my heart is broken. I need something. I just lost my job. I just came into a lot of money. I need something. It'll pretty up a junkyard to get me back to drinking. This is going on before I actually put a drink in my body. So I can't think the drink through because who's thinking the drink through for me? The same mind that wants to take me back to that, which is killing me. I can't play the tape to the end because my mind won't go that far. Page 24 talks about this. Let's go to page 24. Top of the page it says, At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, not some, We pass into the state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. Let's stop there. A powerful desire to stop drinking is great. It'll bring me to an AA meeting, take me to treatment. It'll take me to you to ask you to sponsor me. But it's not good for the long distance. It has no endurance. A powerful desire to stop drinking will get me drunk after a while. It'll it'll putter out. 
The tragic situation has arrived in practically every case long before it's suspected, which means the wife sees, I, need, I have a problem, but I don't. My coworkers say, Joe's got a problem with drinking, but I don't. Everyone's saying, you need to get help, and I say, you have a problem, not me. Right? The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink or control. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, I'm without defense against the first drink. The almost certain consequences that follow taking a glass of beer or taking a little, little, smoking a little weed, whatever your thing is, eating one pill. Don't crowd into my mind to stop me if the thoughts occur. They're hazy and readily supplanted with, it won't be that bad this time. That's what I suffered from. The first time I got locked up, I was petrified. Handcuffs went on, and I thought I was dreaming, and I thought the cops were just going to scare me. Everything slows down. They're just going to give me a warning and then cut me loose when he turned the corner. But they called it in. Next thing I know, I'm in the New York City tombs, and I'm saying, this is not a dream, and I'm petrified. I'm in there with guys who've been arrested, the chain gang walking in, the cops cursing you, kicking you, uh, hitting you with these, these clubs that they just humiliating you, and all of this was a dream. And all I kept thinking, I'll never drink again if I get out out of here. God, please get me out of this one. I'll never drink again. I'm so sorry. I've learned my lesson. I'm a nice guy from a good family. Okay. I got arrested with this young lady I was dating. Her mom worked for the courts. They pushed our papers through. We got to see the judge like maybe 18 hours later we saw the judge. So I'm sitting in the tombs. I'm sleeping on the concrete floor. I got to get out of here. I'll never do this again. We see the judge. We get released on ROR. Hit the fresh air. It took me about 20 minutes to go right back to the same spot that I got arrested in and start over. I got in trouble. I'll be real careful. I'll look around, make sure the cops are not there. I won't drink and drink, all this stuff. And I brought back the lie. Because my mind doesn't work. It, it doesn't see the truth. So how can I rely on a sick mind to fix a sick mind? So trying to think or remember, have a powerful desire, or, 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 or talk about my war stories doesn't work. War stories don't work. They may make me thirsty if I'm not spiritually fit. AH, not really about war stories. We hear a lot of war stories for identification, but I need to be talking about how I don't have a war story anymore, how I'm living in the sunlight of the Spirit. So this mind is at work even while I'm sober. It's certainly at work when I'm drinking, and it wants to take me back to a drink, and I'm, I have no power to stop it. And what happens to me after I pick up a drink? The craving starts, which means I don't have power, choice, control in the body. I'm getting bookended, and there's no way out. And I continue doing this over and over and over again with the firm resolution, I'm going to stop Monday. I'll stop tomorrow. My friend and I were talking about the ballroom scene. Tomorrow. The thing about this spiritual path, without being morbid, we all know, we don't like to think about, at some point, God's going to call every one of us home. We think that's never going to happen. But since the day we, we came out of mama's womb, the clock's been ticking. 
young guys, I know when I was in my 20s, I didn't want to entertain this. But the clock is ticking, and we're all going to get called home, not on our time either. At a certain time, we're going to go. And that can throw us into a, 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 a place of morbidity, depression. Or I can look at it as, I don't have a lot of time. Am I going to get this right? Am I going to live this life the way he wants me to live it? Because when he does call me home and he knocks on a door, I can't call up a sponsor and say, let's go through the work. I need to do another fifth step. <laughs> you got to wait. I got home group tonight. I'm going to do a 90 and 90 and start this whole thing over again. It's too late. And I'm going to look back. Most of us will probably look back and say, shoulda, woulda, coulda. I read a book called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And... Uh, his mentor tells him, when God calls you home, are you going to wish you spent more time at the office or more time with your family? The clock is ticking. And I squander hours and days and weeks and months and one day, I'm gonna. And it's right here, right now. I suffer from alcoholism. It doesn't want to see me unsober an hour from now. I suffer from alcoholism. I'm supposed to get on a plane tomorrow to go home. There's no guarantees I'm going to make that plane. There's no guarantees by tomorrow morning I'm not drunk and you've got to take me to a detox. I know that sounds really exaggerated, but that's very, very true. There is no guarantees for any one of us in this room who claim to be alcoholic, who have plans of maybe going home tomorrow or being here tomorrow morning that when this session's over, we're not going to go into town and get drunk. If I think that will never happen, I'm closer to a drink than I think. Because that means I'm in charge of my sobriety and I'm not going to get drunk. How that worked for me in the past. The only thing that's going to prevent me of not getting drunk at the airport tomorrow is the spiritual disciplines I work with now where there's no even thought about a drink anymore. This is what I'm up against. That's my alcoholism. That's why I want to recover from alcoholism, not just drinking. There's no guarantees. There's no guarantees I get off the plane in Florida and I'm a little thirsty. Instead of getting, you know, a Coca-Cola, I get a six-pack. Who says? If I'm spiritually fit, that's out of the equation. If I'm not, it's a toss of the dice that particular day. Piss me off, I'll go drink. Give me some money, I'll go drink. Give me a promotion, I'll go drink. Don't do anything, I'll go drink. <laughs> so the second half of the first step. So we get stuck, we look at the first half and powerless over alcohol in the mind, and then powerless, no choice control in the body. Now that dash in the middle of the step, this is what goes on for those of us who have been around a while. That dash goes straight up and it becomes a wall. Where we say to ourselves, I haven't had a drink in 15 or 20 years. That's behind me. And I settle in on trying to get my life manageable. It was unmanageable strictly because of my drinking. I'm not drinking. I have 15, 20 years sober, and life out there seems to be going okay. I'm kind of pooping along okay. I got the job. I got all the external things looking good. And I get stuck on that, forgetting that the essence of unmanageability that they're talking about is not knowing what the day is going to look like when the mind says, go drink, and I can't stop it, and I go drink. That's unmanageability, and that doesn't care on what the external world looks like, how much money or little I have, what color I am, what religion I am. Alcoholism doesn't care. 
It doesn't care I have 26 years. In fact, it loves this because if it takes me and I go drink, it's as if I've been drinking for 26 years because of progression. It would love to get a guy like me. And the thing about alcoholism, it gets you where we think we're doing good. We're kind of guarded. We know this thing, you know, doesn't make me feel good. I'm uncomfortable with this. So we have, you know, extra troops in that department where I think I'm kind of moving along good, making some money, a good worker, really good in my relationship. It'll get me right there. Because it's cunning, baffling, and powerful, and it's sneaky as hell, and really, really patient. We can get stuck on the second half of the first step. And I see a lot of guys tank in AA without drinking, tanking. We were talking about this yesterday in the truck. Um, I don't know. I, if I had a dollar for every guy who came up to me and says, "Can usually at these workshops, rarely at a conference where I do an hour pitch and I'm out, uh, at a conference where we're working like this and we're talking and we're giving considerations, they'll ask me during a coffee break, got a minute, I need to talk to you. And, sure. I'm struggling. I already know where they're going. And I asked them, well, let me ask you, do you have a sponsor? And they do this. Well, that means no. <laughs> I mean, we're funny animals, man. I mean, you ask a drunk, are you married? That means yes or no. Are you married? Yes or no? Well, you see, I, I met this woman, and, and, real, and, and four hours later, I don't know if this guy's married or not. This is how we operate. So they don't have a sponsor. Then I'll ask them, what does what your 11-step practice look like? They do this. 11. Deer in a headlight. That means you don't have one. The first discipline to go by the board is meditation and nightly review. Checking in with God here and there so there's no 11-step, which means there's no 10-step, which means we're not cleaning up the day. Outstanding amends for here to Timbuktu which means defects are starting to rear their ugly heads again. They're calling the shots. We're restless, irritable, and discontented. We get used to being restless, irritable, and discontented. The same way, to use an illustrate, you turn on the news, you turn on CNN, bomb explodes, uh, murder, kidnapping, and you're just watching going, you know what, I'll put on Seinfeld. If an alien came down from this planet and watched CNN news, they go, oh, my God, what's going on? What do you mean somebody was murdered? A building blew up. Stop the presses. But we get used to living in hostility. We get used to living in fear and hate and prejudice. It becomes just a thing. Very matter of fact, very dangerous. So we get used to living with untreated alcoholism. And every once in a while, we have the realization something is not right. Why is this table cutting up and having fun? And I'm sitting here all alone, and I'm miserable. What is wrong? I drank worse than them. I have a worse story than them. I'm more educated than them. I make twice as much money than them. And yet they have these, these humble jobs, these humble lives, and they're kicking it. And I want to die. And then we go back to being miserable again. And we settle on, I didn't drink today, so I'm a winner. Maybe not. Are you telling me that God in His infinite power and mercy just gave us don't drink and hang in there? <laughs> Get a different God. Because you're God. That's what you're settling for. There's lots of work to be done. There's tons of work to be done. That the reason why I'm sober, we're sober. There's work to be done. If I'm not drinking, 
and going to meetings and I'm consumed with me, how can I do any work? I love being consumed with me. Despair is extreme form of self. Hope kills despair that comes from faith in God. So I get stuck on external conditions thinking that's the remedy for an internal condition, and it is not. It's the trickster, and the mind loves all of this stuff. I need information to give me the spiritual transformation, not something middle of the road. It's true. Not something middle of the road. 90 meetings in 90 days is middle of the road solution. I don't offer that. In the third edition, the big book on the fly page, the old blue cover, some of you guys remember the third editions, right? It says, but the basic text pages 1 to 164 have remained unchanged. This is the AA message. What message am I carrying? How am I recovering? What's my home group doing? 90 meetings in 90 days is not in the first 164 pages of the book. It might be later on in the book. In the stories, that's not the program. 90 means in 90 days, the middle of the road solution. Don't drink and go to meetings, the middle of the road solution. Make coffee, take commitments, middle of the road solution. They're all nice things. But I need a solution. That's why chapter 2 says there is a singular solution. There is a solution. It doesn't say, we have a few things you can try, multiple lists, whatever you want. And somehow we think 90 meetings in 90 days is the program, and it is not. A solution are direct directions that take me to a place of having a spiritual transformation. It's called the 12 steps. The reason why spiritual principles haven't changed is because they work. And I have new folks coming in and say, well, you know, AA's changed as a new generation in there. I say, okay, we'll go and tell the people put Scripture together, the Bible together, that we have new people on earth now, new generation, so let's change Scripture. Let's rewrite how the world started. Let's 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 tell the cop. Listen, you got it all wrong. We have an Xbox generation. You got to change everything. It's not going to happen. The way the big book, the first hundred sixty-four pages. Thank God that hasn't changed. Our fellowship has changed. And sometimes I get on another soapbox. We get a little too politically correct in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and we're worried about touchy feelings and all this other stuff. This is about, AA is about God. Dr. Bob says, I feel sorry for you if you have a problem with God. I want to be a right-wing, conservative, old-school AA guy. I don't need to be anything goes because it's all life. And when we go to those meetings where anything goes, anything goes. Anything goes. Except the 12 steps. I want to go to doctor's opinion for a second. Now, I have on third edition, it's XXVI. I don't know what it is in the fourth edition. XXVI in the third edition. That would be page 26. It says this. 
We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. Our book uses words like chronic, our type, real alcoholic. They separate us from the moderate and hard drinkers. It says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form, in any form at all. Once in, having formed the habit, they found they cannot break it. Do I experience this allergy once I start drinking? Do I make firm resolutions not to drink but only to go back to drinking? Am I settling on these external conditions to remedy because that doesn't work? Am I relying on a sick mind to fix a sick mind? Am I clear that on my will my life can hardly be a success? Self-reliance will not work. I tried experimenting with the right relationship to stay sober. No good. I tried money and no money. That didn't work. I tried job, no job. That didn't work. I tried treatment. That didn't work. I tried remember where I come from. That didn't work. Why wouldn't it work when I had a powerful desire? Because at some point, my mind will take me back to a drink. So our book talks about 43 pages here about this problem. And I, anytime we give a consideration, I give a consideration, we always want to answer it from our experience, by the way. You know, based on my experience, that I experienced the phenomenon called craving. Based on my experience that I see the obsession at place. Because what will happen if I just give a quick reaction, the ego will bypass the truth and give you the safe answer that protects itself. Always look at a question and say, well, ba- pause for a minute and say, based on my experience, did this happen to me? So based on our experiences, did we have the phenomenon called craving once we started drinking? was more the drink. When I was drinking or wasn't drinking, was, was I always in a state of obsession to drink? Did I try to control and regulate and it never worked? Some of us come to Alcoholics Anonymous and think if we find out that we're not alcoholics, it's the end of the world, and it might be just what we need to hear to find out we're just hard drinkers, and we can't go to somebody's many, any lens. We're not the type they describe in this big book. It's not the end of the world. It might be something you can get free with, but if you're the real alcoholic and you tried every other way, then this is the only thing left. I even tried going to my religious community. I talked about that last night. I quit drinking, and I couldn't. The gift of desperation had to be met with a hand of AA to show me a solution as to what I suffer from. So what do I do nowadays, uh, sober a few years, 26 years? How's this first step breathing for me now? I haven't had a drink or a drug in 26 years. Because I take a look at the bedevilments once a month. I'll do the bedevilment assignment. I'll take the statements, flip them into questions. Where am I? And I'll share with my sponsor. Working with others all the time. And surrendering this to God. Because if I don't, that'll start to make its way back to me. How do we keep it when the heat's not on us anymore? How do we keep first step real for us? Am I getting attached to things 
Am I getting attached to uh, property and prestige? Am I getting attached to relationships? Am I suddenly becoming codependent in relationships? That's all forms of unmanageability. And that will not get erased because I make a decision to change it. Everything drives me back to God over and over and over again. Accountability. I just want to talk about this and we'll take a quick coffee break. Accountability here. A lot of us, I I run into men um, sober a long time and there's no accountability thing. They're sponsoring themselves. So I ask them, how's your car running? And they don't know what I'm talking about. C-A-R, consistency, accountability, and responsibility. How's that looking? How am I doing? So those men I was talking about earlier, when I asked them, do you have a sponsor? And they go, oh, and they don't have one. And how's your 11 step? And they're starting to go backwards through the steps. The same way we go forwards through the steps, we go backwards through the steps. I talk to some of these men, and they're on sex sprees. And they're afraid to tell anyone about it, a form of unmanageability. If I had a dollar, if every guy has come to me doing these workshops, I was getting to this earlier, and they're not drinking, sober 10, 15 years, even five years, Right, sponsoring a bunch of guys, but got the hidden sex life. I'd be driving a Rolls Royce right now. Took a dollar every one of those guys. This is a thing, this internet thing, and and there's running around and no no fidelity in their relationships anymore, and it's killing them. But the ego has. Uh, Harry Tebow talked about the reemergence of the ego, reconstruction of the ego. They can't tell anyone. Because of the obvious, shame, embarrassment, and guilt. So you walk around with this cancer that's getting worse and worse and worse, and at some point you're not going to be here, and we'll just go get drunk and chuck the night away, huh? Bless you. The other one is money. And the other one is, uh, especially where I'm from now in Florida, uh, getting things in this physical, uh, working out, and things like that. You know, I see newbies suddenly becoming members of, like, L.A. Fitness and working out compulsively, and then they go to steroids, and the big is not big enough, and they got to get the tan, and they get all this stuff done and haven't been to a meeting in a week. Or they get jobs, they finally taste being, working, being self-employed, making some money, making more money, working more, making some more money, and then they blow up. And then you throw a little girlfriend or a boyfriend in the middle of this, and AA's now in the way. And all that stuff has become a higher power, and they can't get out. But the guys have been around a while. Uh, the illness will go underground and resurface. We need to get, you need to get with somebody. That's unmanageable. That is your drink. And I, I hate to sound like I'm preaching, but uh, I'm just here to tell the truth. That run on the money run, the food run, the workout run, the steroid run, which is a relapse anyway, uh, um, uh, um, the sex run, that's a drink. And we need to come clean about that with the sponsor. The problem is many of us get around a while and they don't have sponsors anymore. My sponsor is sober 40, 41 years now. He has a sponsor. He takes direction from his sponsor. I have a sponsor. My sponsor, sponsor has a sponsor. You get it? But for some reason, the ego starts to reemerge, gets away from this first step. That was a long time ago. I've had a drink in a long time. And I go to meetings. I talk to some people. I tell you a little bit. I tell you a little bit. I tell you a little bit. No one knows the whole story. And I'm probably going to go to people who are going to endorse me, support me. Oh, Pete wasn't that bad. Don't worry. You're a good guy. It's their fault anyway. I'm sponsoring myself. I am God. 
and the illness is starting to come back, and I'm restless, irritable, and discontented, and it's starting to unravel, and I'm trying to cover up a lot, I'm taking a, a step back to a drink. Again, the same way I went forwards through the steps, we start to go backwards through the steps. It looks like this. I'm not really sponsoring people. I have a couple of guys I'm working with, but I'm not really holding them accountable. After all, I don't even have a sponsor anymore, so I'm not accountable. I tell them I have a sponsor. I haven't spoken to the guy in a long time. And I have a couple of guys, sponsors, sponsees, and they go speak, and I give them some life lessons, and it's really a pain in the neck. I wish they wouldn't call me. They're calling me again, and they're just all hot and lathered up about AA, and I just, just go over there. Go work with people. I'm not practicing principles in all my affairs. I have no 11-step. I have no 10-step. I have outstanding amends I haven't made. Defects are running the show. I haven't done a fourth or fifth step in a long time. I'm not telling anyone anything except little pieces. As far as turning it over, I'm not doing that. I'm running the show. Insane thoughts are coming back, and then I'm drunk. After some sprees, and that can happen over time. It can happen in 20 minutes. And then we say, but Joe was at the meeting last night. What do you mean he's in a detox? What was going on with him? No one knows. When we're clean, we can share things. Because we're sober a while doesn't mean we're immune to drinking. Or cured, I should say, cured from drinking. Cured from alcoholism. It's cunning, baffling, and powerful, and very patient. So we work at spiritual principles. The mind takes us to despair. Despair is an extreme form of self. In this place of despair, well, this is while we're sober. We're not going to listen to God's agents who are coming in. Because pride gets in the way, ego's in the way, and we go further into the despair. And we lose a sense of humility. When I'm in a place of despair, there's no humility about that. I feel like I'm, I'm dying, but there's no humility, because it's all about me. Humility, it's not about me, it's about how can I be of service to you. And what's really interesting is that the man of greed, the woman of greed, who wants the reputation when they walk into a meeting, wants to convince anyone, everyone, that they're big book thumpers and they're, they've been enlightened and wants to make all the money, needs all this stuff, demands, or secretly demands all this, gets nothing. The man or woman who's humble, who expects nothing, gets it all. That's a spiritual law. You know, the people putting the tables together before this thing started, the guy running out and getting coffee, the people are going to mop this floor, maybe an AA member is going to mop this floor when we're out of here, going to be here late Sunday doing this. The people who organize this behind the scenes, who don't get applause, and do it just for fun and for free. Those are the humble folks. When you bring the speakers in, that's when the problems start. <laughs> right? We know some of those speakers. Right? I hope I'm not one. Who, you know, everything I'm here, we can begin now. You know, Or that AA member who walks in and expects the red carpet to be rolled out or wants to say something profound. This is all current unmanageability rather than walking softly and carrying a big book. Huh? The 12 and 12 it talks about doing this step perfect. I don't know if we can ever do anything perfect. But we strive for spiritual perfection. 
If I'm having a second step problem, it's because I have a first step problem. I'm not clear on what I suffer from and my lack of power, choice, control, that I'm doomed to drink. Step one, by the way, tells me and any other alcoholic in this room, step one says, we're drinking. It doesn't say I can't drink, I won't drink, I'll get in trouble if I drink. We know that. But step one tells me, Peter Marinelli, you are doomed to drink. Whether it's two weeks sober or 26 years sober, you are going to drink. Step two is appointed to the solution. I'm having a third step problem, really it's a first step problem. I'm having a fourth step problem, it's a first step problem. I'm having a ninth step problem, it's a first step problem. I have a prayer meditation problem, it's a first step problem. Everything's a first step problem. Especially a sponsor who's showing me the mechanics or the methodology on how to do this work, and I'm struggling to do it, I don't want to do it, I, I, I'm in the middle of this, this thing where I can't get it done, I can't complete my fourth step, so I'm making more meetings. No, 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 we need to go back and touch step one again. Have a new experience with step one, what hopefully not picking up a drink, and the reality is some of us have to go get drunk again, then come back with more hours in our back and say, okay, I'm done. It all trickles back to my first step. So regardless if I'm sober, you know, a short time or I'm a long timer, everything trickles back to step one. It is a thing that blows me out into two, three, four, and so on. And then we catch some power around nine that takes us into the world of the spirit in 10, 11, and 12, which that power then brings us into one to nine again. I'm one of those folks who do the steps at least once a year, one to nine to 10, 11, and 12, sometimes twice a year. Conversely, when I first came around, about my first 10 years, I was a, a 10, 11, and 12, and that's where you stay. And I would get argumentative with the men and women who said, no, you've got to rework the steps. And I'm not here to decide that for you. Until I hit a wall with about 10 years sober, and I heard people talk about reworking the steps to further the death of self and the ego. And they seemed to be joyous, happy, and free. And so I did this process with a new sponsor for the second time. And everything changed. And the third time, and the fourth time, and the tenth time, and the fifteenth time, one, two, nine, into ten, eleven, twelve, and so on and so forth. And I can't see life without doing that. I love the effect produced uh, by booze. I now love the effect produced by God. It keeps me out of my own way. Page 30. Page 30 says more about alcoholism. In case we didn't get it, they're going to talk more about it, as one gentleman said. And it says this, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. So here's a the distinction of the moderate or hard drinker, a real alcoholic. And they talk about that guy on page 21. It says, um, no person likes to think he's bodily and mentally different from his fellows. I have two younger brothers. We used to drink together. We smoke weed together. And I'm embarrassed to say, I, you know, I turned them on to cocaine. And then they said, this is not for us anymore. I have one brother who hardly drinks. He'll probably have a toast at New Year's Eve. And my other brother drinks socially, here and there. Me, I couldn't stop. Same bloodline. I didn't want to think I was sicker than my brothers. I didn't want to be the black sheep, but there I was. Therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove I could drink like everybody else. 
right? The idea that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my drinking. Talking about, like, uh, bondage. I want to control and enjoy this. If I have to control it, how could I enjoy it? Only alcoholics think this way, by the way. I'm going to go into a bar and I'm going to have one drink per hour. <laughs> Civilians go in to go get, I'm getting drunk tonight. Better get drunk tomorrow. I'm driving, I'll have one and that's it. I'm the desert. You know how they operate? I, I have to share this. Um, I fly a lot. And I've heard other people who do this fly a lot share a similar story. But I always get these guys who sit like right next to me or close to me. You know that the, the, the flight attendants come by on the plane with the little wagon and they have liquor. Why even start on this thing? It's this big. <laughs> Unless I can get a case of that, right? Okay. So I always get this guy, which I don't identify with. This to me is alcohol abuse. He reading, you know, some magazine or some paper, and he's John Wayneism takes over, and he orders his little Bacardi or something, and, and he has this one little drink. And he has a cup of water this big, right, with, filled with ice, and he puts it down. Now, I don't know about you, I'm just going to chug it, right, and get another one just to get the, the pop. And then i got to keep coming, then you arrest me. I get carried off the plane by security, and that's my story, right? But this guy puts it down, and he goes back to reading his little house and garden magazine or something. Right? Right? And then after a few minutes, he pours a little bit into all this water and ice. And he doesn't drink it yet. He goes back reading some more. And then at some point he picks up, and this is what I always hear because I always right next to me. He's got a Mickey Mouse drink. He does this. Ah. What's ah? You had water. With a little bit of liquor. There's no R involved here. <laughs> All right. So I don't get these cats when they do this stuff. I, 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 I don't understand that. Um, I don't drink like that. So our book says, the idea that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. So I get on a plane and so say, I'm just going to order one. I'm going to relax i got a long flight. I'm in first class. I'll get one little glass of wine. Nice. It's nighttime, a night flight, very romantic. Right? You're shaking your head. Yes. You're not flying this week. Forget it. Um, <laughs> sounds pretty good. So I'm going to have this one shot of this one glass of wine. And then I have it. And then it's... Now we start. Now I, I said one, no more. And the mind's saying, but one more. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. How could I control and enjoy? The person next to me has a glass of wine, one drink. That's all they want. They have a couple of sips. Maybe they get drunk. Maybe they even order two. It's, not, there's no investment here for them. So I can't control and enjoy. It's a fight. The idea that somehow he would control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this lie is astonishing, and many pursue this lie into the gates of insanity, wet brain, or we die. We learned that we had to fully concede, submit under pressure. That's a spiritual thing when we get it at a gut level, a cellular level, that I'm alcoholic. 
This is the first step in recovery. The delusion or the lie that I'm like other people has to be obliterated, drunk or sober. I'm not like other people, drunk or sober. In the ABCs it says this. If we go to page um, 60 for a minute. It says, A, we were alcoholic and cannot manage our own life, drunk or sober. Sober, I can't manage my own life. Drunk, I certainly can't manage my own life. It's a first step consideration. That probably no human power could relieve our alcoholism. That's drunk or sober because I suffer from alcoholism even though I'm not drinking. It's the isms. No human power could relieve me of that. There's a second step consideration. And that God could and would if he was sought. Am I seeking or am I hanging around waiting for the miracle to happen? Have you heard this one? Stick around for the miracle to happen. You're sitting, I'm sitting, an alcoholic in an AA meeting, not drinking. The miracle has happened. What am I doing with it? Do I have teachers? Because alcoholism will make its way back. It looks like this. I go to the beach a lot, and uh, sometimes uh, there's a strong undercurrent and the riptides and all that other stuff. And sometimes it's a little little push under the ocean. Nothing strong. And I'll put my beach chair where this podium is, and I'll go out. And I'm out there playing around. I, I love being out there. It's fun. And uh, 15, 20 minutes, I make a turn. I want to come back to my beach chair and go lie in the sun. And I turn around, and I can't find my beach chair. I'm looking around, oh my God. And it's about 50, 60 feet, 100 feet to my left. I said, oh my God, I didn't even feel myself drifting. Just playing around, a little push, a little push, a little push, a little push. And you turn around to go home, and you can't find home, is what happens to us in Alcoholics Anonymous. Cunning, baffling, and powerful. I think I'm managing my life. I got the right relationship. I got some money. Everything's good. And I'm drifting, I'm drifting, I'm drifting. And then one day a crisis hits, and I need to turn back, and I, I can't find it. I'm lost. That's a struggle. Some of us don't make it back. I need to stay close to the base, home can't put anything before my recovery because I will lose it any, anyway. So sobriety, as they used to tell me, is a number one priority. 43 pages just on this first step. So I get clear as to what I'm suffering from. And once I'm clear that I'm going to drink, that I'm doomed to drink, they present me with step two, which is the pointer to the solution that we brought to sanity, wholeness of mind, truth. And we'll talk about that after a 10-minute smoke break. Okay.